Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 20 this morning. We're still going through Luke's gospel. We're here at the end of Luke's gospel, preparing for the crucifixion of Jesus at a time when we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. But you realize the very purpose of Jesus' birth was so that he would die. We're into a couple of chapters that is the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. They're ticked. And now they're looking for ways to trip Jesus up, trick questions. And they're trying to figure out a way to bring charges against him. And they're asking trick questions. And we're going to look at some of that today. What strikes to me this morning in this passage is not just how Jesus deals with difficult people or these Pharisees, hypocrites, but the fact that they are resisting Jesus' invitation to come into a relationship with him. That's probably what stands out to me the most. And in all of the Gospels, Jesus is inviting people into relationship with him. And I think of what kind of relationship that is. He would invite people into an intimate relationship with him, not just to believe on him, but he would say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think of the kind of Christianity I grew up with as a child. I went to church. But at some point along the way, I discovered the presence of the Lord. Not just that I believed in him and that he did live, but that he was actually with me. That was a major revelation in my life. Have you had that experience? That awareness of the presence of the Lord in your life. That is the shift that needs to happen. When we talk about the Lord working in your life, it is, it is through that intimate, personal love relationship with the Lord. Not just some impersonal Jesus that's working things out and then you're suddenly surprised, you know, that circumstances come together. That, but it's really more that you're, you're just aware that you, you have, that he's with you. But there are things that can keep that from happening. Pastor Chuck used to talk about neutralizing doctrines. That's the way he phrased it. That though we might have a personal relationship with the Lord, there are things that get into our belief system that hold us back, that get in the way. He would, he would say we can get a lot of things right, but... We can get a few strange doctrinal ideas into our thinking. And if we don't work those things out, it really neutralizes our intimate relationship with the Lord. Just like, you know, in, in our relationships with each other, I might get some weird idea that my wife thinks something about me. I've never done that. I'm just pointing you out because you're safe. My wife would say, 
why do you always look at me when you say certain things? I'd say, because you're safe. You're safe. I'm going home with you today. (laughs) But I could easily get some weird idea. Well, you think this about me. Even though I know she loves me, I could get some some little seed of, of irritation. Hypothetically, if that could happen in marriages, you know. (laughs) And if we don't resolve these little pinprick ideas or, or wrong ideas, it really gets in the way of becoming one, doesn't it? And it's with that in mind that I think of our our study today. The religious leaders have questions. And even more than just working out the the doctrinal ideas that these questions are about, it's the fact that when Jesus gives them an answer, they don't want an answer. They don't allow the answer to change their minds. And so they are going to be fixed in this hardened, religious, worthless condition. God forbid that we should become religious and impersonal with God because that completely misses the point of why Jesus was born and why he died for us. In John 5, Jesus said to the religious leaders, verses 39, 40, Uh, through 42, he says to them, you search the scriptures for you think that in them you have eternal life. In other words, just knowing them. But it is these which testify of me and you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive honor from from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. So religious leaders who search the scriptures, more and more knowledge, and yet they miss the very point of the scriptures, which was to bring them into relationship with the Messiah, which was Jesus Christ. And Jesus pinpointed the issue. The love of God was not in their hearts. And Jesus would say to the the apostles, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So often we think that grace means I don't have to follow the rules. I don't have to keep God's word. And you realize that a relationship based on love brings out of us greater commitment, not lesser commitment. You see, if I love my wife, I'm not going to be saying, well, how much do I have to talk to you today? Men, let me tell you something. That's not going to work. Do I have to talk to you today? The answer is yes, I have to talk to you today. But if, if I'm just trying to fulfill the minimum requirement... Tell me what the rule is. Tell me what the standard is. 
Do I have to, as soon as somebody says, do I have to go to church? Do I have to do this? Do I have to pray? No, you don't have to do any of it. You can be born again and stay home. But it's not good for you. And if you love the Lord, you're going to be you're going to be saying, how can I grow in my love for the Lord? It's not a requirement. And John would say in 1 John that the commandments of God are not a burden. And so I pray for you all the time that you shift out of an obligation sense of type of Christianity, if that's you, into a sense of what can I do for the Lord? How much more can I do for the Lord? Not because you have to, or somebody's looking at you funny if you don't show up for this or do this, but it's really a love relationship compels us to do more than any rule would ever, ever require of us. And Paul would say in Galatians, that those who are led of the Spirit don't need rules. You don't need the law if you are led of the Spirit. And it's that kind of shift that we become uh, not only aware of the Lord's presence, but he begins to work in our lives in fresh and exciting ways. And that is an exciting church to be a part of. We're going to pick up at Luke 20, verse 27. And this first trick question is about the resurrection of the dead or what happens in the next life. Verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. So right there is a clue. They're going to ask a question about something they don't even believe in who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. This is like how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and she dies childless. Then the third, third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Now, to our hearing, if you've never heard this type of this scripture before, this is strange, isn't it? How many of you are thinking, this is weird? Yes. And they have exaggerated to exaggerated it to the point where it does sound silly. And it is sound silly because guess what? It is silly. And you know, when somebody asks you a silly Bible question and it sounds silly, it probably is. Now, I love to answer Bible questions, but you can kind of hear that tone in somebody's voice when they have an insincere Bible question. They just, they just want to debate. 
or stir up issues. So the Sadducees are the sect. They are not Pharisees. They are the other group, the Sadducees, and ask a hypothetical question. It is loosely based on the Bible, but it's a ridiculous question. Jesus entertains it. He answers the question, and then he will use this to do some training for the disciples. Now, the the thread of a basis for this question is based on Jewish law found in Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25. The Leveret law, it essentially says that if a man takes a wife, if he dies without having children, that his brother, if he is willing, will take her as a wife and bear children. And that is done to, to, to grow the family, to keep inheritance like land in the family. And it is a part of the law. It's ridiculous to think that there would be seven brothers and there would be no children. And so they ask just a question that really doesn't even make sense. And the fact that they're even asking about something they don't believe in reveals how how insincere it is. They don't believe in the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees accept, only accept as scripture, the first five books of the Bible. Forget about the 39 books that we think of the Old Testament. They only accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And in fact, these doctrines regarding miracles, angels, spirits, resurrection, the supernatural, the Sadducees didn't believe in those things. Here we have religious leaders who don't believe in miracles. Right there is a red flag that says, find another church. They don't believe in the resurrection, in spirits, in miracles. And so, the ridiculousness of their question just compounds. And they say that in the, the real scriptures, the first five books, Moses didn't write about any of those things, spirits, resurrection, miracles. To make it worse, the priests of Israel were made up of Sadducees. They were the Sadducees, which explains why when the apostles taught on resurrection in the book of Acts, they opposed. And it explains why whenever Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, they opposed Lazarus and tried to figure out a way to get rid of Lazarus. Their question really reveals a lack of confidence in the word of God, period. Did you know that there are ministers in pulpits this morning that don't believe the Bible is the word of God? Did you know that? 
and it is not a occasional thing, one here and, you know, just a few. There are huge denominations in America that have officially said the Bible is not all God's word. Now, we would say the Bible is God's word. You know what they would say? They would say the Bible contains God's word. That little slip of a phrase means that in the 66 books, there are portions of it that are not from God. And But there are little portions here and there that are probably from God. Now, what happens as soon as we do that to God's word? As soon as we are the ones who are deciding which portions are from God and which portions are not from God, it puts us in the judgment seat of what we are going to listen to. Do you know that? There are whole denominational groups who have this in their thinking. When we hear God's word, we are going to decide if it fits our life or not. In this church and in Calvary Chapel, we believe that all of the Bible is God's word. From Genesis to Revelation. From creation to consummation. And we are not deciding which portions are and are not God's word. It, that's already been tested. We would say by the canon of scripture. So it's already been settled. And when people have critical things to say about scripture, I, by this point in my life, I don't get worked up. I kind of just feel sorry for those people. Because they always sound intellectual. Of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the intellectual group. The Pharisees were the layman's group. And intellectuals love to say spiritual things that they don't really believe. Uh, I am glad I'm not that smart. And the Bible has already been tested and settled. To be God's word. Objective tests, not feeling tests, not I feel it's true, therefore it's probably true. Not my elder or my pastor told me it's true, therefore I believe it's true. These are subjective, uh, objective tests, not objective tests, that we would subject any writing of literature to. So let's look at Jesus' answer. Verses 34 to 36, Jesus gives a simple answer from logic. Verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age, or in this life, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels or like the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So it's simple to make a plain observation. In this life, we marry to have children, 
and to continue the human race. In the next life, we will not marry, we will not have children, we will not die. Answer, that's it. And the fact that the Sadducees wouldn't know that really reveals their lack of spiritual understanding. Of course, Jesus says, those who are counted worthy, which, by the way, they are not. Now, no one is worthy, but those who are counted worthy before God are those who have believed in Jesus Christ. John 3.16, very easy. Those who are counted worthy are born again. They are born of the Spirit. They're part of the family of God. When we die, we go to be with the Lord, Paul said. We will see him face to face. It's the hope of our calling. That is the good news. You know why it's called good news? Because every other solution for removing sin and removing the penalty of death has failed. It's good news because it worked. Every other remedy to save me from death has failed. And if you survey the world's religions, I at one point thought, you know, I wanted to be an expert on the world's religions. So I dived in and I would study the first one. Then I, I got that. I have more Jehovah's Witness books on my bookshelves than the average Jehovah's Witness. And so when they come to my door, I invite them in, they sit down at the table, and I start asking them questions about this book, and on this page, your book says this, and they're kind of shocked. It's like, how do you know that? It's like, well, I have your books. Would you like to see them? And I'll say, did you know your leaders wrote these things? No, I've never heard that. Well, let me show you the books. And so once I finish with Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witnesses, I move on to the next one, Mormonism, and I, and I suddenly discovered something. It was the same thing in a different package. All of these world's religions are the same thing in a different package. And that package is essentially... If you want to achieve heaven or enlightenment or whatever the goal is, in some measure, it's on you to work for it and achieve it. It always boils down to that. Regardless of all the belief system and all the hoops to jump through, it always boils down to something that is on a burden on you to perform. Always. They often quote portions of scripture or at least allude to the Bible to give them credibility. All of our sins are, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah said. On your best day, the best work you could ever do still falls short of perfection. And we have a saying for that. No one's perfect. And we all know that. It's so obvious anyone knows that. So because no one's perfect, guess what? God is not lowering the bar. The standard is still perfection to get into heaven. 
So if it can't be done, what's the answer? Rather than earn it or work for it, God just gives it to you. It is a free gift. Now, what is our part? It is to receive it in faith. In faith, we believe on the Son of God. And in faith, it assumes we're turning away from our old life and joining ourselves with him. And that is a love relationship. It is entered to, it's interesting that people who criticize Christianity understand the strength and the value of marriage. The strongest relationships we have in this life are based on faith and love. The marriage relationship is entered into based on faith because we love our husband, our our wife, our spouse. Rules cannot hold a relationship together. So those who are counted worthy are in the eyes of God saying, you have believed on my son, you are counted worthy. You are counted worthy. And so in a few words, Jesus clarifies, there is no working to get to heaven. There is no marriage in heaven, which we all know which religion that answers. There's no marriage in heaven. There are no families in heaven. We'll know each other because we'll look the same. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. I would like to look a little better. Don't laugh. So Jesus answers it so plainly and simply. This life is different from the next life. How obvious is that? They're imagining that the next life is just like this life. This life is cursed by sin and death. So we marry, we have children. In the next life, we are free from sin and death. There is no marriage. We will not have children. But then Jesus goes on and answers from scripture. And I love this about studying God's word to help me get rid of strange ideas that I hold on to. Verse 37 to 40. But even Moses showed in the burning bush that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not ask him any more questions. They can't win a a Bible argument with Jesus. So you remember the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus answers from the first five books. Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God spoke those words to Moses when he came up onto Mount Sinai to to check out the burning bush. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When Moses went up onto the mountain, were these men 
alive? Were they dead? Or were they still yet in the future? These men had already died. So God says to Moses, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, the details mean something. The little details mean something. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am, meaning I am right now, they are with me, and I know them. That simple line is enough to put away this idea that there is no resurrection. There is no life after this, after this one. When God says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you read God's word, it's important that you pay attention to the words. Do you know that? I know I'm saying something kind of silly, but I'm saying the obvious. Slow down and read. Pay attention to what you're reading. And it is important that you have a translation that is not so paraphrased and generalized that the words, the specific words, have lost their meaning. I'm not a King James only Guy, there are people who are King James only. That's the one Paul used, and that's the one I'm going to use. <laughs> it's hard to read because it's technical. I will just say this. It's hard to read, not just because it's old language, but because it's technical. And there are technical phrases in the King James and the New King James that are are lost in new translations like like just for the sake of being funny like the niv you know what we call that in ministry the the nearly inspired version now it's fine i'm not saying it's it's heretical but i i do want to make the point that the the discovery is in the details It's in a simple line that Jesus completely exploded the stupid question of these intellectual Sadducees. It's right there in the word, and they didn't know it. Now, of course, we can miss things, but when we read it, and, and you've had that experience, man, I've never noticed this before. Have you ever read the Bible and said, I have never noticed, it's like, they just put that there. Where in the world did that come from? I love those experiences because that's when the Lord is opening your eyes and you're seeing things. You're discovering things. That's when I know somebody is filled with the Spirit, frankly. Because you're having those moments where you're discovering things. That happened for me when I was around 25, 27. Even though I had been in church my whole life, pay attention to the details and ask questions. And 
when you discover things that maybe are different from what you believed, here's the question. Are you open to changing your your beliefs? Are you open to God's word correcting you? Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, Paul answers the resurrection from nature. People will, I love it when people say, well, that's not, that doesn't even fit science. You know, these somehow that science and religion don't go together. That's a whole other topic. But did you know the entire field of scientific research and the developing of scientific laws were developed by Christians, not atheists? How many of you knew that? A few of you. You know why? This idea that science and faith don't go together is a complete fabrication. Because science came about by men of faith. You know why? Because they said, if God created everything, then there should be order and design in nature. Let's go observe it. And as they observed nature, they saw laws. The laws of nature were discovered by men of faith, not men who didn't believe in God. So it is Christianity and the belief in design, not random chance, that brought about order. So Paul answers from nature. If you're taking notes, which I know all of you are, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 38, listen to what Paul says. Someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So is resurrection logical? It's in nature. The simple observation that you take a seed, you put it into the ground, it dies. And out of that death comes forth a plant. The seed didn't spring up, but a plant sprang up, a body that was in direct correlation to the seed that went into the ground. So we observe death and burial and resurrection every spring. And so Paul is saying, look around you, and the process is happening all the time. Now Jesus turns the tables and he asks a question for them. Verse 41, he said to them, now how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? So it's well known 
that the Messiah will be called the son of David, a descendant of David, will sit on the throne. 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, that the Messiah will be the son of David. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, which is actually quoted uh, in the New Testament more than any other psalm, Psalm 110. The Jewish leaders know that Psalm 110 is a prophetic psalm, that it's talking about the coming Messiah, and that David was speaking about the Messiah. So there's no question. Now, here's the simple question. If we all know that the coming Messiah is a descendant of David, and David himself calls him Lord, why did he do that? Now, here's the thing. The older would never refer to the younger by the term Lord. The younger would always refer to the older by that term of respect, Lord. So he wants them to answer, why does David, who is, why is David, who is older, call the coming Messiah, his own descendant, by the title Lord? They can't answer it. The only answer is that the Messiah, who was to come, preceded, existed before David. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Micah 5.2, born in Bethlehem, but his coming well, his goings forth are from everlasting, which is just a Jewish way of saying that he never had a beginning. From everlasting, never had a beginning. Verse 45, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, now Jesus is going to wrap this up with the disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, Love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The disciples are now ready, about ready to be given the authority for ministry. These ordinary, uneducated men, and in their whole lives, they have been trained to look up to and respect the priests, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. But in order for them to do the work God wants them to do, they have to, they have to stop living for the approval of those men. There was a time in my life when I was very young when I really put so much into wanting the approval of certain people. That's fine to want your mentor's approval. But if you have a mentor that has some issues, which is not uncommon, You have to become a person who is personally dependent on the Lord and not just living for the approval of higher-ups. In their mind, in the Sadducees' mind, the priest's mind, they were the only right authority 
of any spiritual authority. And this is all going to change. The care for the kingdom is being taken away from them and given to ordinary men. But for that to happen, they have to be men of the word. They have to be men who are personally aware of the presence of the Lord. And this is going to be a a, a huge shakeup for them when Jesus goes to the cross and they think it's all over. And then the Lord is going to appear to them. And they're going to realize that everything that Jesus said, when he said, I am with you to the ends of the earth, they're going to discover he actually meant that. He actually meant it. And wherever they're going to go, Jesus will be with them to the ends of the earth. They're going to be around Jerusalem and Israel, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's amazing to see how the Lord has worked around the world. He's done the very thing he said he was going to do. Several years ago, I just remembered uh, a time when I was in India about 18 years ago. And there are a lot of Christians in India. It's also Hinduism, Islam. But in the southern part of India, especially, there's a huge number of Christians. And they were telling me that, that that's where the, the large Christian population is. And I said, well, why? What happened in church history that there are so many Christians in the south part of India? Immediately, you know what the answer was? That's where, Tim, that's where um, Thomas went. Thomas. That's where Thomas went. And there, even to this day, there are Christians who call themselves Thomas Christians. For our lives and whatever the Lord has called you to do, I pray so much for you that you are the type of Christian who is aware of the Lord's presence in your life. Wherever you go this week, the Lord is with you. He's not watching over you, waiting for you to fail. He's interceding for you to strengthen you in everything that you're doing. And you're going to be doing things that are hard, that are lonely, that are unappreciated, misunderstood. But I want you to have that awareness that the Lord is with you and that you can talk to him all the time. That he keeps his word When he said, I'm with you to the ends of the earth, it wasn't a metaphor or just an allegorical, a figure of speech. He was literally there with you. Christmas is always a stressful time. All these years of ministry, I have noticed every December, the stress level in people suddenly goes up. Because we have to, you got to see people that maybe you don't want to see. You're going to see family people. You're going to spend money you don't have. And all of a sudden, the stress goes up. 
How about if we just decide to be happy? Can you do that? Just let the Lord give you peace. Let's have a great Christmas. It feels strange with so many people sick and here or not here. Half the worship team is missing because they called out sick. And I just said, look, we're, we're going to have church. We're just going to get the job done today. And I think the Lord has ministered to us and through us, and we've had a great time together. Amen. Let's stand together. And as we close in this song, it asks we have a worship or uh, our prayer teams up front would be great. And if you can need somebody to pray for you, they're available. Or even in your seat, you could just have the person next to you just pray for you. But would you just pray with me that, that our church becomes just so sharply aware of the presence of the Lord?